the Hamlet podcast. Happy Halloween and welcome to this week's book club, dedicated, I hope appropriately, to Macbeth. This is the play that I studied for my leaving certificate, the Irish State Examination at the end of secondary school. This is also the play that made me want to be a theatre director. I was endlessly bored of essay questions like describe the use of animal imagery in this play, one that is so clearly a text for the stage, for performance, and not for teenaged essays. Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, and certainly one of his most infamous. To this day, it is considered very bad luck among theatre folk to say the name of the play aloud. It's very taboo among actors, so if you say it in a rehearsal room, you can fully expect to be made leave the room, and then you'll have to be invited back in. And as for saying it in a theatre, well, just don't. Part of this superstition about the Scottish play grew out of its popularity. If you want to make money, put on Macbeth. Therefore, if you're working in a theatre and you hear the name whispered by the management, it can often mean that there's money trouble, which is of course bad news and something that you don't want to hear. But this is also a play that tends to be staged in a lot of darkness, sometimes even with smoke, and with a good few special effects and a lot of fighting. Blood, daggers, and drinks. There's so much hurly-burly that of course there's room for accidents to happen, and they do. And this is how reputations and superstitions develop. These various factors, financial concerns and complicated stage demands, might ordinarily be enough to explain away a bad reputation. But there is another factor, and that is that this is a play that deals with the occult. We begin with witches, we have a lot of curses and murder and some very unnatural crimes. And then, in perhaps the play's most famous scene, the witches brew up a magic potion and, depending on which text you prefer, the goddess of witchcraft herself is conjured. The play quite literally looks for trouble, not to mention fire burn and cauldron bubble. Shakespeare's source for the play was Hollinshed's Chronicle, although he does quite an amount of rearranging of the historical material. The real Duncan seems to have been quite a brute, who himself gained the throne by violent means. Macbeth was apparently quite a good king and was helped to the throne by Banquo. So why would Shakespeare want to alter things and make Banquo a wise observer who was cruelly murdered and therefore would have had no part in any historical skullduggery? Well, this is where the whole play starts to look very interesting indeed and solves the mystery of one of Shakespeare's weirder stage directions. In the play, Banquo's son Fleance escapes. The dastardly murderers bungle the job and don't manage to kill the young man. The play wouldn't work if they did, because Fleance is presented as a boy, and history tells us that he will survive his youth and become a father. Very early in the play, the witches tell Banquo that he will be father to a line of kings, and at least some of the audience would have known that King James I, King James VI of Scotland, was a descendant of that very Fleance. The witches say a lot of equivocal things in the play that can be interpreted many ways, but in this they do tell the whole truth. 
Banquo is the father of a line of kings. Anyone aware of Scottish succession could presumably pick up on this. It's also very possible that Shakespeare's company performed the play at court. I feel like this is extremely likely, because during the magic scene, when the witches show Macbeth a series of prophetic apparitions, Shakespeare gives us this direction. A show of eight kings, the last carrying a glass. Now, it's not as though there are literally eight kings between Macbeth and James. There are about three times that number. The number isn't as significant as the fact that Banquo follows the eighth one, the one holding this glass. Shakespeare is constructing an image for his royal patron, linking him via this glass or mirror to his forebears, the now innocent Banquo, and his plucky son, who escapes the bloodbath of this nightmarish play. The mirror, which I like to think would have entertained the king, may never have been as effective in any other performance. But it's not the only part of the play that reflected the interests of King James. The Scottish king was obsessed with witches and witchcraft. He'd even written a book on the subject, entitled Demonology. His was a Briton increasingly fascinated with dark magic, terrified of trafficking with evil spirits, and particularly the dangers of witches and unruly women. Shakespeare wasn't the only playwright to put witches on the stage, but I don't think any playwright until Arthur Miller put witchcraft on the stage to quite as lasting, popular or memorable effect. If you'd like to learn more about witches in history and on the stage in the early modern world, there's an excellent book by Diane Perkis that covers the lot. Appropriately enough, it's called The Witch in History. There's a wonderful chapter that includes Macbeth, in which she discusses how Shakespeare actually stages something like the greatest hits of witch behaviour. But she says he does so in a way that is almost self-contradictory, as if he's only putting the witches on the stage for maximum thrill and impact. And maybe this isn't surprising. In James's increasingly Puritan England, putting on a play about a usurping Scottish monarch might have been politically provocative but not if it's a play that shows how his ancestors were not murderers and also features some gloriously alarming women casting spells and leading men to ruin. If these little nods to the contemporary cultural climate weren't enough, we have one further element, equivocation. In the same year as Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, 1606, a very public trial and execution took place of a Jesuit priest called Henry Garnet. Father Garnet had been indirectly involved in the gunpowder plot and he was tried for his complicity in March of that year, 1606. At his trial, he drew much anger for his use of equivocation, the sanctioned practice, particularly popular among Jesuits, of managing one's answers so that they could appear tactfully truthful without giving oneself away. The Porter scene, directly after Macbeth murders the king, includes a great many references to Garnet's trial. The various people that the Porter acknowledges in his drunken vision of hell, or Castle Macbeth, make little sense to us today, but an awareness of the Garnet case can help us to decipher it. Not to send you away to read yet another play, but if you enjoy this kind of background information, there is a terrific one by Bill Kane called Equivocation. 
It does a very fine job of imagining the overlap between life in James's London, Shakespeare's writing life, and the political upheaval of the gunpowder plot and Garnet's ugly trial and execution. But for now, back to this play. It's Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, and people love to argue over whether perhaps there's some of it that's missing. Theatre folk are particularly intrigued by the role of Lady Macbeth, and whether or not she should have another scene. She's one of the most powerful women in Shakespeare, certainly one of the most interesting, but her role is very small indeed. Should she have had another scene? Who knows? Those that she does inhabit are remarkable. She's called a fiend-like queen by the end of the play, but I don't know if I think this is especially fair. Malcolm might be justified in hating the woman in whose house his father was murdered, but she didn't do it. She convinced her husband to do it. But this is as fiend-like as she gets. For me, the most moving emotional shift in the play is the way that she and Macbeth drift apart. He shuts her out as his deeds get murkier and bloodier. He himself wants to keep her innocent of his crimes. But this is where it all goes wrong. As a couple, together they can get away with murder, but once he drives a wedge between them, she loses her peace of mind and he loses everything. The sleepwalking scene is treacherous for any actress approaching it. It's rather amazingly tightly structured, though. I don't know if we're supposed to think she's mad, or rather haunted, by dreams and memories of their actions. Beat for beat, she seems to repeat the sequence of events that happen directly after the murder. The panic, the concern for washing the blood from their hands, and the knocking at the south gate. The only thing that's insane is that she's blabbing details that very clearly prove that she and Macbeth were responsible for Duncan's death, rather than the sleepy officers outside his chamber. Her tragedy is that she's left to repeat these motions, proclaiming their joint guilt to members of her staff while she sleepwalks, bereft, all but abandoned by her husband. The other big mystery about Lady Macbeth is whether or not she's a mother. In one of her most shocking lines, she proclaims that she knows what it's like to breastfeed, and that she would smash the smiling head of the child had she so sworn as Macbeth has to their great enterprise. It's a horrifying but tantalising image. It's not beyond the realm of the possible for a woman to breastfeed without being a mother, but does Shakespeare want us to think that she and Macbeth have lost a child? Elsewhere, it is pointed out without a shred of doubt that Macbeth has no children. Just before Macbeth returns to their castle at Inverness, at the start of the play, Lady Macbeth calls on the spirits of darkness to harden her and focus her on her ambition. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts. Unsex me here, and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come, thick night, 
and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, Hold, hold. Never mind the witches or Hecate, Lady Macbeth is the one that really traffics with the dark side. In this speech she prays that all motherly instincts and possibilities be removed from her. She says, unsex me here, stop up remorse, take my milk for gall, stop all compunctious visitings of nature. This is a total rejection of any possibility of motherhood. She wants nothing to distract her or get in the way of her becoming queen. Very soon after this startling prayer, far more serious than any of the double-double hocus-pocus of the witches, Macbeth will tell her to bring forth men-children only, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. There's a horrible irony in this. The very thing he's praising her for, this steely determination, has come at the price of any hope of those male children. The Macbeths talk a lot about gender. She feels he's too full of the milk of human kindness, like a mother, and he tells her to bring forth male children only. When she's trying to prick the sides of his intent, she holds nothing back. When you durst do it, then you were a man, and to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man, she says. Now, traditional gender roles are exploited throughout Shakespeare. In an all-male theatre, in a country that had been ruled by an unmarried woman for half a century, they'd have to be. But the Macbeths are different, because theirs is not a dynastic marriage. They are together because they match each other, and they really love each other. There's no adultery, no children, no cheating, no land-grabbing, and no inheritance in play. They're a unit, perhaps the most devoted couple in Shakespeare. In a good production, the chemistry between them is mesmerising, and therefore it's heartbreaking when we watch it unravel. To me, it's mind-boggling to think that this role was first played by a teenage boy. At least Macbeth himself would have been played by an adult. He has a reputation for being one of Shakespeare's more poetic heroes, but we do well to remember that the first description we hear of him is extremely violent, all that business of him slicing open the enemy from the scene to the chops. And again, the last word used to describe him is butcher. From beginning to end, he is soaked in others' blood. And yet, we sympathise with him. In Richard II, the very first play we looked at on this book club odyssey, we sympathised with the poor king that was deposed and then murdered. Now Shakespeare pulls a real stunt and has us instead sympathising with a king's murderer. The witches, the equivocation, the various nods to King James... All of these are fun, and Lady Macbeth is fascinating, but the real heart of this play is Macbeth himself. In him, Shakespeare gives us a study of a great mind, spurred by ambition, derailed by false hopes and the siren song of these witches, but ultimately heroic in his determination. Throughout the play we see Macbeth thinking, maybe even more than we do with Hamlet. Our Danish prince is always one step ahead, showing us only what he wants us to see. Macbeth, however, holds nothing back. Part of his problem, I think, is that he sees too much, and he can articulate it so beautifully. Even when he hears that his wife has died, 
we get this acknowledgement that all life must end, even hers, even his. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There's no play within the play in Macbeth, but as in many other plays, there's a little nod to the theatre here. Shakespeare's most moving images always come from what he knows best. I think this might be my favourite Shakespeare play. When I was young, my mother used to read bits of it to us at Halloween, especially from the witches, and that's probably why I kept it for tonight. As soon as this episode goes online, I'll be watching a production featuring Dame Judi Dench and Sir Ian McKellen, completing a week devoted to Dame Judi here at the Hamlet podcast. If you missed the recent bonus episode devoted to her, be sure to check it out on the website. As you know, thehamletpodcast.com. Macbeth was also the gateway to my interest in the work of the Japanese director, Ninagawa, and indeed his production of the play is so beautiful, it's the one I chose for the cover of my book about him. Goodness only knows what the week ahead may bring us, so for complete distraction, I've chosen one of the most mysterious plays for us to read. It's going to be Cymbeline, a later play that takes us on a long and winding journey around Europe and around Britain, but does lead, eventually, to a reunion and hope for a better future. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I'll speak to you next time.